In the name of God, amen. Please be seated. Good morning, St. Columbus. Wonderful to be here with you. Last time I was in worship with St. Columbus was a year ago, September, which was a time of considerable turmoil and transition. Much has happened at St. Columbus since then, and you're now at the threshold of a new era as you're in your community. And someone we do not yet know, or perhaps we do know, is making his or her way to you, towards you, and will one day be invited to be your next spiritual leader. And I am praying for that person. And actually for all that you're going to meet in the interview and discerning process, that the experience will be a blessing for all of them, even those who will fall in love with you and not be chosen. Um, that, that is one of the heartbreaks of ministry, to be in the process of discerning and not chosen. Uh, it's happened to me several times, and it is its blessing in its own way, but you have to work at it a little harder. <laughs> And I also pray for the one, as I know you are, who will be chosen and who will accept that he or she be filled with all spiritual grace and the stamina needed to serve Christ and his mission with you. And I actually have had several conversations with people who are exploring this. I just want to tell you this. And, and they have a lot going on in their lives. And I have said to them, listen, you come to St. Columbus. You come to St. Columbus <laughs> and uh, be ready to, um, for the ride of your life. So this is a sermon about uh, beginnings, a certain kind of beginning, and also of speaking and hearing um, hard truths and taking all of the, that truth to light. Um, and um, you, you know that saying, perhaps you've heard it said, you've said it yourself, um, you had me on hello. In other words, the first thing you said was the last thing I heard. I feel that way um, opening the Gospel of Mark. Uh, the first line is on some level the place I have, have based my whole week on thinking of this moment. The beginning, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. And I've been asking myself, okay, when and where does the good news of Jesus begin for me and for you? And how does it begin? And how do we realize its beginning and respond? Now, this one we name as Mark, who wrote this brief and urgent gospel about Jesus, was clear about the beginning. And as you heard, there's no mention of a baby born in a manger. The beginning is a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare, prepare the way of the Lord, make his, his path straight. And then this story of a fierce and fiery man calling us to repentance. And the interesting thing about John's call to repentance, unlike those street corner prophets who you might pass by on your way to work, they, who sort of plant themselves right in your path and kind of dare you to pass them. 
John planted himself in the wilderness, away from everybody, and people flocked to him by the thousands. They actually wanted to hear the hard truths of repentance that he was calling them to, as if they wanted to stop the lives they were living and live a different life. Now, most of the time, the human response to that kind of prophetic truth-telling, the kind of truth we need to hear but don't especially want to, is to ignore it. And if it becomes too insistent to turn up the volume of something that will distract us from it. But then there are those other times, those inexplicable times when we are actually drawn to the very people who are going to speak the truths we need to hear, even when they're hard. And the reason we're drawn to them is because they seem to occupy that place, that gap between what we know is right and our capacity to do right. And my guess is, thinking of my own life, is that we're most attracted to those kind of truth-tellers and the tension they create for us when inside we're being prepared to make a move. And our willingness to pay the price necessary to walk toward truth is beginning to outweigh our desire to play it safe. And then we will go just about anywhere to find someone who can articulate and embody what we feel drawn to ourselves. I spent five hours in the convention center yesterday. When I heard that the mayor for life, Marion Barry, had died, and I was watching the reaction to that death, and the differences of reaction, depending on where I was in this city I now call my home, I knew that I had to go there to understand something about the place where I live. And I tell you, I mean, and I had friends who were going to come with me, and then they decided, eh, and got other things to do. Um, I was riveted in my seat for the entire time. And I learned more about this city in those five hours than I've learned in my three years here. And I could go on for a long time about what I heard, but let me tell you what I saw. That Anne and I were probably one of five people who were not of color. In other words, we were, there was a convention center filled with thousands of people, residents of this city, and they didn't look like me. And everything I heard was through a lens, interpreted, lived through a life experience that was not mine. And as I, I don't know what it's been like for you, but as I listened to the multitude of voices rising up in response to the most recent 
grand jury decisions not to indict a white police officer for the killing of an unarmed black man. I'm beginning to wonder if we're at a John the Baptist moment in our nation. The first series, the first wave of responses in response to the officer who shot Michael Brown fell along fairly predictable racial and political socioeconomic worldviews, the fault lines of our country. So you could predict people's responses basically from where they sat or from where they live. But the second, in response to the chokehold killing of Eric Gardner, seems to have broken through to a different place. And we're having different conversations. Ones, I hope, we may, we may be, through which I hope we may be able to hear difficult truths that were being spoken yesterday and the day before, but that we didn't hear in the same way. And while that's not easy for a country to do, it's also encouraging in a way, in the way that getting real with ourselves sometimes can be. I don't know if you're a follower of social media, but there's this trend now on Twitter with the hashtag criming while white. It started off as a joke, someone poking fun at white privilege, but then it exploded, as they say, with white people, listen to this, with white people confessing to crimes that they got away with at a rate of 600 tweets per minute. A white drunken driver who was given a speeding ticket only. Another man shoving a police officer, told to go home and sleep it off. Women caught shoplifting, reprimanded, and sent on their way. The Washington Post said, in response to this, the tweets have pulled a whispered universe of racial privilege and put it on the national, onto a national shareable stage. And criming while white has become Twitter's most shared topic in the United States, and it's now trending globally. Its counterpart is Alive While Black, and it's a platform for the countless indignities people of color endure that most white Americans can't even imagine. Thinking of that young boy who was um, shot and killed carrying a, a toy gun really came home for me because in the southwest uh, city neighborhood of Minneapolis where our boys grew up, the senior class of his public high school had this game. They did it every year. It was called Assassins. It was played out in the streets of the city of their neighborhoods with Nerf guns. The senior class was divided up into teams and their job, they each had a hit list and they were on somebody else's hit list and they drove around and they biked around their neighborhoods hitting each other with Nerf guns. They were having the time of their lives, right? This was like, it was the great equalizer of the senior class, right? I guarantee you that didn't happen in North Minneapolis, right? A very different demographic. I'm not saying that I'm endorsing this, by the way. As a mother of these boys, I was slightly horrified. But they, do you hear what I'm saying? Criming while white, alive while black. 
Churches are also playing a different part in this conversation now. It's not a new conversation. We in the Episcopal Church have been talking about anti-racism for generations, but it's taking a different form. It's different now. There's a church in Alexandria, one of the most wealthy congregations in the country. They're talking about white privilege in a way that they've never done before. Rick Warren, pastor of the largest megachurch in the country, not exactly known for its progressive social stances. He's just announced he's preaching his Christmas series on the sin of racism and racial reconciliation. It's a different conversation. And I just want to say that this is one way that the good news of Jesus begins. It's hard. It's a reckoning and a realization that in some part of our lives, in this case in our public life, we've been asleep or distracted or unreconciled. In some ways, we've all been going through the motions of living as a nation, but not really living. We're not, we haven't been paying attention, some of us, to what's been happening in our name. And while the word repentance, we just prayed it in one of our prayers, while the word is an old-fashioned religious word that I haven't used in everyday speech for some time, it's worth hanging on to because it means not only that we acknowledge something that we regret and we feel the remorse of it, but we're also getting ready to turn away from it. We're we're wanting to leave a life behind and to start a new life. Um, it's Repentance in the beginning feels like something happening to us. It wakes us up. Think for a moment of the story of the prodigal son. Before the father welcomes him back, the son comes to himself, the scripture says. He, he wakes up as he sits in a pigsty. He comes to his senses, gets up, and begins a long journey home. And I know it sounds really odd, but it's actually good to think of some of these things in anticipation of Christmas. It's, It's kind of a relief, actually, to acknowledge that for all the goodness and joy that we rightfully prepare for and want to celebrate, All is not well, not within our souls, not within our lives and relationships, not in our communities. And we don't have to pretend about that. And we don't have to live as if it weren't true. And in fact, part of preparing for this Christ child is to acknowledge that we we need him. And we need him in a new way. And in that sense of repentance, we're We're allowing ourselves to wake up and engage God. God begins this process, but it also requires our response. I've no doubt that in Jesus' story, God helped the prodigal son come to his senses, but he still had to get up and walk home. And I'm sure John the Baptist would agree. Not one to mince words, he would be fairly specific in all the ways that 
We're we are likely to give ourselves a pass. And he knew, as I think it was Dostoevsky who said, that the secret of living isn't to live only, but to have something worthy to live for, something worthy of our effort and sacrifice. And John would ask us, as he asked those who came to him, to look within and look around and to acknowledge that gap between who we are and who we want to be, and then repent, just to say, to get ready for a different kind of life. Unless you, unless you think I'm only speaking of the social, political, let me leave you with a story that is rooted in family and in relationships close to home. It's from a scene in the novel, The Secret Life of Bees, in which the main character, a little girl named Lily, is having a conversation with August, the eldest and the wisest of these African-American sisters who are central to the book. And Lily starts out, and she's narrating in the first person. There's one thing I don't get, she says, or I said. What's that? How come if your favorite color is blue, you painted your house so pink? August laughed. Well, that was Sister May's doing. She was with me the day I went to the paint store to pick up the color, and I had this nice tan color in mind. But May latched on to this sample called Caribbean pink. She said it made her feel like dancing a Spanish flamenco. And I thought, well, this is the tackiest color I've ever seen, and we'll have half the town talking about us. But if it can lift May's heart like that, I guess she ought to live inside a pink house. Huh, I said, all this time I just figured you like pink. She laughed again. You know, some things don't matter that much, Lily, like the color of a house. But lifting a person's heart now, that matters. And here's the part. Here's this. Listen now. The whole problem with people, she said, they don't know what matters and what doesn't, I said, filling in her sentence and feeling proud for doing so. No? I was going to say, the problem is they know what matters. They know. But they don't choose it. You know how hard that is, Lily? I love May, but it was still hard to choose Caribbean pink. <laughs> the hardest thing on earth is choosing what matters. Repentance is one way of choosing what matters. It's a really courageous thing to do, to offer ourselves to God, acknowledge those gaps, and, and say that we will be ones not only to receive, but to act, actively participate in his coming. And the choices start in the ways we begin. Let the good news of Jesus begin with us. Amen.